back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, our old friend Jana Matthews is back. And let me tell you, Jana does not disappoint. Stay tuned for Jana's assessment of the five different sex positions known to the medieval world and how these positions rank morally. Spoiler alert, Tyrion happens to be amoral. And that's just one of the many things we learned this week. Without further ado, here is medievalist Jana Matthews. I should know how to introduce you. I mean, I've introduced you a couple times already, yeah. but, you know, maybe your title has changed since we last did this, or maybe you have a new book to promote or something like that. I do have a new book to promote, but my book is not related to Game of Thrones, so it's probably not, or like medieval stuff, so it may not be useful. I, I'll but. mention it. I, I mean, who knows? So my book is, that's coming out in July with UNC Press is uh, The Benefits of Friends, um, right inside the complicated world of today's sororities and fraternities. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Interesting. Right. <laughs> and it's called The Benefits of Friends? The Benefits of Friends, Inside the Complicated World of Sororities and Fraternities. Well, now I'm interested. Is there Are there books like this out there? This is the first time I've ever heard this topic as a book yeah it's one of the reasons why i read it i wrote it is because mm. there's um there, there's just a couple of, of histories of individual fraternities and sororities mm -hmm. but um i am at a school where sororities and fraternities are are really prominent and i was asked to serve as a faculty advisor for one and I got, that kind of got me into it and then i just did a bunch of um i spent five years kind of traveling the country doing I, this kind of project. And, um, and so it was, yeah, just, I wrote the book that I wanted to read as a, both as sort of a scholar and a practitioner and as a parent. Um, hmm. And so it's, yeah, so it'll be interesting to, to see how it comes, but yeah. And the book is out now? Uh, it comes out in July. Well, that sounds fascinating. Uh, should we jump into this chapter? Let's do it. Jana, this chapter follows directly after a really brutal chapter with Danny, the aftermath of a big battle and rape and slavery. And this next chapter is sort of grotesque and action-packed and complicated morally in, in a number of ways. So it's almost like we're seeing the plot rise to sort of this climactic point of the book. Um, did you feel that rising action in this chapter? Yeah, I, you know, I think that the, it's no accident that those two chapters are paired together, uh, are paired against and, and with one another. So this is one of the longest chapters in the novel. Yes. Um, and it's, you know, which was a, it's interesting and important given that it focuses on kind of literally one of sort of the smallest of men um, in here. And, and I think a lot of the themes that we see in the previous chapter with, you know, sexual assault and with um, battle and with... Um, you know, themes of, of right of, of servitude and of relationships um, get carried over in really interesting ways here. So I'm really excited to talk about it. Yeah, let me read. It's a quite a long synopsis, um, and I'm sure I'm going to skip over a bunch, mm -hmm. uh, but we can fill in the gaps in our conversation. So here's my synopsis: Tyrion is late to his father's table. It has been set atop a hill with suckling pigs lined with gold and red and populated by Tywin's most esteemed men. Tyrion talks over his newfound army of hill folk with Lord Lefford and Kevin Lannister when he learns that his father means to place him at the vanguard of the upcoming battle. 
Tyrion leaves the table dismayed at the news and walks through camp. After a brief exchange with Khan and Bronn, Tyrion meets Shay. Shay is a sex worker that Bronn has fetched for Tyrion. Tyrion and Shay talk briefly about the transactional nature of their relationship before sex. After sex, a chat with Bronn and more sex. Tyrion wakes to the sound of horns. Lannister troops, Tyrion among them, scramble into position. Carnage and more carnage and more carnage ensues. Tyrion manages to defend the river, which was his command, and survive the mayhem. Later, he learns that Tywin's plan was for Tyrion to fold and force the Stark troops into the river. Then they learn that the greater portion of the Stark army is on its way to River Run. It seems that Tywin has been outwitted by the young wolf. So, Professor Jana Matthews, what do you want to talk about? A character, plot point, a theme, or shall you and I climb the ladder of chaos? Uh, let's climb the ladder of chaos, for sure. All right, there's a lot of chaos here. So, where to begin? Let's start with um, let's start with Shay and prostitution. I love that. I oh, look this this chapter is so <laughs> packed, and it's Shay could almost be an afterthought here. And yeah. we meet both Shay and Podrick, mm-hmm. and Shay's among the very few characters that is, uh, you know, she's not working from a place of privilege. So I would love to talk about Shay. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Shay is a she is a fascinating character for a number of reasons. Um, you know, on, on one hand, she is sort of the embodiment, um, and you know, even Interior recognizes this of, of of being embodiment of male desire in the sense that she says, "I am here exclusively for your pleasure and to do your bidding at your, you know, and I, um, you know, will be everything, anything that you want me to be." And he tells her exactly what he wants her to be, um, and so that you know, that's an interesting concept. And I, I, you know, can't help but read this within the context and the history of of prostitution and concubinage within the Middle Ages. And I hope we get to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They both know that this is her job, right? Mm-hmm. And they both know that part of her job is to deceive him into thinking that she's in love with him or something along mm-hmm. the or is, you know, truly, uh, truly taken by him. And he kind of knows this is probably an act, but I'm happy to play along. But what they're saying with their lips is, I want the truth of you. You know, Tyrion says, I want the truth of you. I want you to be honest. And, you know, that's what he says. And then a little bit later, he says, I'm happy to, you know, living in a few of these little lies. They're both very quick-witted. And I think that they both know that they're playing a game with each other. And they're both getting something out of this transactional relationship. Yeah, I think that that's really, really important to think about the the, the things that Shay is getting out of it, because to read this simply as, um, and you know, as you know, prostitution or sex work as being a form of subjugation of women, and you definitely can get that, right? But I, you know, this was within the context of history, um, an opportunity for lower born or lower class women to have opportunities that they didn't would not normally have otherwise. Mm. And, and for today, within the context of this particular chapter, um, you know, we we definitely want to talk about it within, you know, the, the sex is occurring in and around um, before and after the the meals, right? And food preparation. And so um, there's both this sense of, of appetite and desire about filling and consuming and meeting the, the desires and needs of mm-hmm. the body, both in 
the sex and food, but also there's sort of just a real literal, um, you know, problem and issue of, of food scarcity and shortage, mm. and shortage in this era, in this time period. And so, you know, if people are always in danger and on the verge of starving, the one thing that, that this transaction gives Shay is uh, a place to sleep. It gives her protection. It gives her food. It gives her all the sort of necessities of life um, that, you know, might, and, and many women in her, in her, you know, similar situation would, would be struggling and desperate for. So it's not, um, I think transactional is probably very, very, very accurate. They both get something from this and whether or not, you know, there's a power differential there, whether it's an equal transaction is, is to be is left to be said, yeah. but, um, but there, it's a mode of exchange. And the Riverlands have just gathered for war here. So we get this, this really vivid depiction of Tywin's banqueting table, right? Yeah. Well, that food had to come from somewhere, right? <laughs> it didn't come from yeah. nowhere. It probably came from the surrounding farmlands. And mm-hmm. that food was probably taken off the plate of peasants. Um, you know, very literally, you know, taken out of out of, off of their their land. And so the lowest members of society probably have to go hungry because Taiwan's troops have to eat. You could imagine that Shay is absolutely being exploited here, right? Right. And uh, yet she's a survivor. She's using her body in a way that allows her to survive. And so, yeah, I think I think it's important to note the complexity of this. I was hoping that you'd talk a little bit about sort of the the history of, or the yeah. the background of sex work and yes, concubines and all of that business. Yeah. I can definitely do that. So I, I think what's interesting is that, you know, in contemporary society and at least in contemporary American society, we have a, we're very prudish um, and we still look upon or we do have this sense of prostitution as being morally problematic, it's against the law. Um, and we kind of read backward and say that it's always been that way. Um, but in, throughout the Middle Ages, actually, and it's sort of inscribed within canon law, um, prostitution was, uh, you know, was frowned upon, but it was tolerated. It was viewed as a sin, but it was a, a lesser evil. What about sort of a, a lesser sin? And mm. um, famously, Augustine said, "If you remove prostitution from human affairs, then you will destroy everything with lust." And that's the sense of like mm. that prostitution becomes is a necessary part of society, and particularly to keep men in check. Um, you know, was widely believed that brothels existed to keep men from killing each other. Yeah. You know, they have, and I, that, which is why this, this chapter um, is so important and so powerful in the sense that it blends, uh, you know, Tyrion who has been abstinent for a year and he's sort of on the verge of exploding, you know, um, we, you know at, when he goes to the dinner table of his, of his father right. and his uncle, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of just barely able to hold on and he kind of has to, you know, move away before he's, um, before he, you know, becomes infuriated. Yeah. Part of that act of sex is is actually this form of release. Yeah, Augustine's um, view seems to be that it's something of a pressure valve, right? It is a pressure valve, absolutely. And and he, what his argument is, it seems to me, is that look, men have this sort of lust problem, yeah, and they need to have ways to push the pressure valve so that it doesn't build up and become a, a bigger problem. But yeah. I think with Tyrion, it's even more complex. I think if you look at who Tyrion is in this chapter, he's got anxiety about war. He's yeah. got this fraught relationship with his father. He he feels yeah. 
uh, you know, sort of emasculated by whenever he's around his father. And he's like literally physically hungry. He's walked away from the table without eating. He's got all of these other problems. And he, then he gets this little respite with Shay, right? So it's not just solving his less problem. Yeah. Um, it's it's sort of this little, I don't know, island away from the rest of his problems. You know, and he's also disabled. And so one of the things when we think about sex work is that we tend to have a sort of stereotypical vision or version of like who is who is the recipient of the sex worker partners. And one of those populations that we kind of don't think about, but is actually a sort of a huge client base are, are individuals who are disabled. Hmm, um, and yeah. so the, the sex worker today, right today, and even within history offers companionship and the opportunity for intimacy to populations and groups of people that might not have uh, easy access to marriage or have easy access to sort of sexual partners in this way. And that's part of also like what Tyrion's experiencing too, is the sense of like, I, um, you know, by virtue of your position, this is all that I'm allowed or I'm able to get. Right. Mm-hmm. I, uh, and, and, um, and so you're going to have to tell me a lie that, you know, that you're in love with me. And I, but, but that's all that, that's all that as a, as a, as his father calls him a dwarf, right. Is, is all that he is allowed to lay claim to yeah. in terms of, in terms of relationship. Um, I think it's also the, the terms of what the negotiation of the, of the terms of the relationship is also important because he's, you know, Shay is called all, she's called a whore, um, and, a you know, in a sort of most colloquial sense, that means it's an individual that you've, uh, you know, you have purchased for a transactional sense for like a one-off, but he, Tyrion's asking for something quite different and more than that. Um, you know, he wants her to be um, faithful. He wants her to, he wants the relationship to be exclusive and he wants her to, you know, to say and do things. He kind of wants essentially what he wants a common law concubine. Yeah, you know, that's right. Is, yeah. Right. And, and a concubine within medieval and early modern society was culturally normative. Um, was very similar to what we might call the common law spouse today, but hmm. they it was between two unmarried people. The uh, the the children it was very marriage like. Um, usually occurred between a lower stat, status person and an individual of higher status. Um, there was a legal tolerance for it, and one of the benefits I think to the upper class individual is that any children that happened from this arrangement were illegitimate, and so they were able to have access to sex and to the sort of intimacy without the responsibilities and obligations to it. Hmm. Um, and then for a lower class person to add, it, it enable them to increase their wealth or ingratiate themselves within a community that, right, a, a matter of social climbing. And so for, for Tyrion, you know, we, we don't really talk about Tyrion's prospects in future as, as being a marriageable person as the youngest son, um, or as a, as a son who is, physically not capable of ruling the kingdom. No one takes him seriously as a legitimate heir. And there's sort of question marks about even whether he's physically capable of being a legitimate heir. Hmm. And so for him, you know, Shay is, uh, is, is not only sort of, uh, not only sort of like the, it, it's not only the only option, but it is, it's the best option. And it sort of, it, he, he, it is sort of the form of marriage that is most accessible to him or maybe only accessible. To well, him. and it, it's also a way for him to manage the experience, right? Yes. So he taught, he's talking about like prior experiences for himself and, you know, he's had situations where he's wanted to pay for sex 
but mm-hmm. he can't stand the look of repulsion on yeah. the woman's face when she first sees that he's a dwarf. Mm-hmm. And so she, he's very careful to tell Bronn, make sure that you tell her what I am and mm-hmm. what she can expect about the way I look. Cause I don't want to see the look of repulsion. Yeah. He wants to feel, he just wants that moment of normalcy. Even if he, even if he knows it's, a, it is transactional and maybe the woman is putting on an air of attraction or something like that. That's, that is the experience that he's looking for. And he just can't stand the thought of beginning that transactional relationship, seeing the look of repulsion on the woman's face. And so anyway, I just think that this is, you know, it's, there's nothing ideal about this for any of these characters. And yet it is how Tyrion has learned to manage his disability in this particular way. So in, or I mean, we always go there. And so uh, I think if we're going to talk about, about the sort of the sexual interludes, then we need to talk about the kinds of sex that, are, that happens in this chapter, because I think that's really important. Um, so, you know, from in his, this is both, this is simultaneously a text that is sort of deeply embedded in history, but is also um, very mindful of its modern audience. And so I, I want to be careful and say that I, I am not I'm not making an argument that, you know, George Martin was like consciously doing this and how much of this is about sort of blending modern sexual norms versus, mm. uh, you know, between uh, mapping that on in the past, to the past. But, but, uh, you know, as a medievalist, I couldn't help but read that the sex scenes and think about a couple of things. So the missionary position was the only legal sex position. Is that um, right? I had no, it, I had no idea it, that there was legal sex positions. The only legal sex position. I mean, all you need to do is sort of peruse medieval artwork and, um, you know, and the, the sort of marginalia on the comments and illustrations from medieval mm-hmm. manuscripts mm-hmm. to know that that was not the only sex position that, you know, people engaged in, but mm-hmm. um, sort of viewed as sort of the only thing that is like holy. And the reason why is because it, it was sort of thought that anything other than missionary position would... Um, would conf- you know would confuse gender roles? It was uh, it was it was some it was something that was something shifty, right? So there's all about the preservation of preserving literally kind of like the man on top mm, in a sense. Mm-hmm. And then Albertus Magnus in the 13th century wrote this really great because you know you can't ever get enough in talking about people wanted more specificity, and so he said here are the five sexual positions in order from most okay to least okay, and so it goes missionary number one side by side sitting, standing, and what he uses the term turgo, which actually is movement from behind. So all of those, um, but but what we have in here, and so the, if, if the first sex act that they have is missionary position or, or something akin to it, the second act, the second time that they have sex is with um, Shay on top. Right. And so, you know, you, you can't help but read that as a form of um, within this particular position of as, as much as they, as much as the part of the negotiation that happens beforehand is I want you to act in the role of the, the, the dutiful, the dutiful wife, you know, mm-hmm. um, lover who kind of like says everything that I want to see, like literally kind of cleans me up, washes my feet, rubs my aches and pains away. Um, and the very, you know, sort of the second sex act, like she is taking on the role of of being the dominant figure here, um, and 
And so that also sort of sort of speaks to the sense of of agency that that she's existing. And again, whether or not right. whether or not that was intentional or not, but it it definitely popped out to me as something that was unique and surprising yes. and also kind of great. And I think it does mirror that early interaction that they have. Yeah. I think that Tyrion Tyrion always or I shouldn't say always, but a lot of the time Tyrion will use humor to disarm a would-be foe, and to flip the power dynamic in a way. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And this is exactly what she does to him. He says, look, I'm I'm Tyrion. Uh, people call me the Imp. Mm-hmm. And she says, I'm Shay, and men call me often. Mm-hmm. And he can't help but be admire her for her mind, right? He see, I think he sees something of uh, I don't know if he sees an equal. I think that that might be too much to to uh, foist yeah. onto Tyrion. You know, he's he's certainly a man of his time, right? Sure. Um, and in many other ways, he's he's a elite, wealthy, powerful man of his time. But I think he recognizes that this is someone that will entertain me uh, intellectually as well. Yeah. And so for her to kind of exchange barbs with him does foreshadow the kind of sex that Tyrion is going to be able to have with her. Um, well, I'm here. To, I'm here, This is my role. This is my job is to sort of <laughs> tell you things that are going to change your life. Right. That once you hear it, you can't unhear yeah, it now. Absolutely. This is going to, it's going to change everything for me, Jana. Um, uh, Cause I'm nothing if not a moral man. I, I feel like, it's such an important introduction to such an important character. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's such a small part of this chapter, seemingly. Um, <laughs> there's so much else to talk about. I was wondering if you had anything about the very detailed description of the battle. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think that battle scenes, um, you know, we just came off a, a sort of a very graphic description of a battle. And so to, to, have a, a another um, sort of extraordinarily detailed account. I mean, just from from the, the from the lens of literary history, reminds me of just uh, like like what we're reading is so, so much of this particular chapter reminded me of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, mm. uh, which is a a 14th century British poem. And, and what is so interesting about that is that 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 poem alternates scenes between hunting scenes and uh, sort of feasting scenes and and, and, and and like bedroom and sex scenes and so and all of those kinds of themes kind of get get muddled together um and, and we see that that here so i think that there's just there's a, a what we see here is a, a a really an obsession with detail and so we're getting everything from you know the color of the breastplates into the you know graphic description of, of what each man is wearing in their armor mm-hmm. and and so in so much of one's identity, you know, you are what you wear. And, um, and so the way you're projecting yourself and the way that you are, your status within the community um, and with, on the battlefield is, is reflected on the, both the, the weaponry that you have in your hands. I and mean, early on, there's so much conversation about, um, uh, you know, Shaga, like liking to, he says he likes to mm-hmm. kill with either hand and like there's you know, a conversation about like how he wants multiple axes. In each yeah, hand. I love that line. Um, yeah, yeah. Tyrion says, Shaga is of the opinion that three axes is better than two. <laughs> better than two. <laughs> yeah. 
I love I love the contrast between what Tyrion's armor is like and what his father's armor is like. Yes. Tyrion talks about how, hey, if he was back at Lannisport, he would have this perfect armor perfectly fashioned mm-hmm. for his physique. Yeah. But here it's like hodgepodge. It's like big old giant helmet with a spike on the on the top and a, you know, a breastplate that's too big for him. And they're just hodgepodging together armor that would might work for him on the field. And then you look at the way that Tywin's described. Yep. The helm of a lion with, you know, golds and red ruby eyes and the clasp of a gold uh, of a cloak that's actually lined with gold and so heavy that, you know, the wind doesn't even blow it. And the clasps, you know, he just looks like a god come to life on this battlefield and it's exactly how Tyrion views him. It's like, he always feels lesser than whenever he's in the presence of Tywin. Mm -hmm. And I think that the armor actually illustrates that really well. Yeah. I mean, and if, if Tyrion's always sort of made to feel like the fool intentionally, this is another kind of clear example of everyone else matters and everyone else kind of gets the accoutrements that the mm-hmm. best suit them into their skills. And he gets left, you get, you like literally gets whatever's left over. Um, and, and nothing is, nothing is made. There's no attempt to make anything to specification for his body because there's no expectation that he's going to do anything. Right. Um, right. And the expectation is like, it's almost like you don't even need to wear, I guess you have to, we have to put you in, in armor because that's what you have to wear to battle. Um, this is the uniform. But, you know, it doesn't really matter what you're wearing because you're not going to you're you're either going to be useless or you're going to get killed so quick that mm-hmm. nothing, nothing's going to matter. So it's just a, a form of a profound form of disrespect. This one, and I think this may be the first time that Martin does this. But you see, you know, you see the enemy come over the hill, you hear the the beating of drums and you the details of the different kinds of drums that are being used. Um, You're seeing the different banners described. And then you get a very vivid depiction of like horses biting faces off and, you know, people being trampled and, you know, it's just, it's so vivid and we really haven't gotten that in this book yet. Yeah. It's as you described it in the introduction, it's grotesque. Yeah. Um, And it's brutal and it is, and the the destruction that's described is primarily, and I think importantly, from you know the the losses on the Lannister side, hmm. uh, right? You know, it says Tyrion's looking around, and he's the through his perspective is able to sort of survey after the battles won. Like it's just surrounded by men from his own camp mm-hmm. um, that are, are sort of totally and like wholly unrecognizable. And what I think is one of the interesting things is that, um, you know, Tyrion is, is injured at his elbow. And, uh, but, you know, in that moment, when he's sort of, when he's stand, he, first of all, I mean, it's remarkable that he's one of the ones who survives, given just all the sort of things that are stacked against him, Um, which is also, I think, a a kind of a a repeated theme that Martin Hotway has is that, like, look, like, all the outsiders, the outcasts, they may look and they may seem like they are, um, you know, going to go first. But they're resilient in ways that you don't expect or don't anticipate. Um, but he's, you know, when he's standing there in his sort of disheveled state, mismatched armor, injured, 
and he, he looks just as disfigured. His disabilities don't look so profound in comparison to the people that are around him. Mm. And so, right. I mean, he's standing amidst just body parts essentially. Right. And, and that, that, that is a profound image of um, not necessarily leveling the playing field, but there's this, there's this moment of, you know, like, you know, we're all disabled, right? And and war has this ability just to really kind of take the best of men and like the a lot of the individuals who are described in the beginning of this chapter, um, right, are are either dead or they're um, they're they're mortally or they're sort of very seriously injured. Absolutely, I'm glad you brought up Tyrion's stature because there's at least two ways in this chapter where his stature ends up being a benefit to him. Mm-hmm. And at least two ways that I noticed anyway. The first is Braun's comment that if you're as big as Gregor Clegane, who's the biggest man anyone's ever seen, guess what? You're a bigger target for the archers, yeah. right? <laughs> and I think, and Tyrion says, I never thought about it that way before. But in that moment, I think Tyrion's thinking, ah, oh, this is actually better for me. I'm a, I'm a smaller target, less chance that I get hit by an arrow. But then later on, he's facing a knight from the Stark army and the knight stops short of killing him and says, um, imp, do you yield? Or he Mm -hmm. says, dwarf, die dwarf. And then he, you know, he says, do you yield? And he asks him like three times, do you yield? And that gives Tyrion enough time to like use his helmet spike to impale the horse and the horse falls on the night. And then, then that guy yields. Mm -hmm. Well, in this case, Tyrion is not wearing gold armor. He's not, Mm -hmm. he doesn't have like a, a, you know, Lannisport hilt on his ax or anything like that. How does he know that this is a highborn Lord that you would want to capture instead of kill? Well, the only way that they would know that is because his, stature is very distinctive so if he hadn't been a dwarf he might have just been completely impaled at that point but because his reputation precedes him people know that tywin has a disabled son that knight stops short of killing him and saying do you yield and so in this way i think because he's recognizably short it actually does save his life yeah yeah, I never thought of that, but you're absolutely right. Sometimes I like look at the this battle scene, and there's this guy with a morning star. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking with another medievalist, and I remember that person. I forget the guy's name, but I remember him telling me, you know, morning stars are like uh, they're not very useful, and they probably weren't used very often in battle. Yeah, well, there's lots of medieval weapons that are highly impractical. <laughs> And, and so, um, and I think, right, you, you, when you think of medieval based video games, you know, you've got mm-hmm. these guys that are carrying these like gigantic weapons that, you know, have five different kinds of, you know, spikes and stuff on them. And, <laughs> and, and, and that, and so I, I think a lot of that was, is that they're in the same time um, in this particular chapter, when you, when they, when um, Tyrion and when the, all of the Lannister army like takes, you know, sees their sees the opposition coming over the hill they're kind of horrified by the front line and um 
and and part of that has to do with the display of battle, right? It's mm. sort of it's fronting and it's standing up. And so I don't know, you know, what specifically those particular individuals or what they would be wearing, what they would they be carrying. But oftentimes in medieval battle, they a lot of it would just be for show, right? So you'd want to put like the most <laughs> right. intimidating kind of figures at the front um, to make it look, you know, to sort of scary, right? And Interesting. to have you kind of way. Um, I want to. So I'm super interested in the beginning, right? Because this this starts out at a at, at a table where people are eating food. Yeah. And if we could turn, if we could spend a, maybe a couple of minutes talking about again, like the, the hunger and like the obsession with specifically the types of food that they're eating sure. and, and why that's interesting, um, is that I was interested in the the long trestle table. So it's kind of like a long picnic table. Okay. And. What is what was interesting to me about that is that if that this is a a place where we've got a, a king and princess sort of sitting, and unlike the kind of medieval round table of of King Arthur, right, this is a long rectangular table, and so when Tyrion sort of pops himself down there, there's really no head of it. There's really no head of a rectangular table, in the way that there is. Uh, well, there's no one sitting at the head. They're all sort of sitting across from each other. Mm. And so there's sort of these interesting sort of a moment of right, where on one hand, it's very clear based upon who they decide to pick on where the social order and ranking is. There's also another way in which Martin um, really emphasizes throughout this chapter that, uh, that like, that, that, that social hierarchies are, um, are being disrupted at the same time that they're being reinforced hmm. um, in and through food. And when you're talking about like where they're getting this food so it's, it's not just any food but they're getting the the things that that, that Tyrion um or that they're eating at that table are suckling pigs which are baby pigs right they're right. infants they're usually massacred or they're usually killed um massacred is not the right word slaughtered is a better oh, word sure. <laughs> right uh, between the um ages of two and four two and six weeks so they're babies and part of that is I mean it's a luxury it's a delicacy the any any animal any baby animal is much more tender mm. and um and but they're also smaller and when you allow a pig to grow larger it can feed more people and so this is also to your point really about decadence like, yeah it's about decadence and it's also about uh disrespect for the people where they're getting it uh, where they're getting this these foods and so they got pigs were the and pork was the most common meat um that was eaten there was sort of source of protein not only because pigs were really easy to raise and they often would take pigs on on journey they you know to, to go to a battle um it would be a, a big enterprise and so you'd have to bring your source of food with you mm. and pigs will eat anything and they're very very easy to kind of corral and take care of and they're very sturdy hardy animals and so it's not not no surprise that people are eating pigs here um, but there's also like roaming and foraging pigs and wild pigs were the thing that happened in the middle ages and so the the, the doomsday book it was famously measured woods measured territory by the number of pigs that could sustain it could sustain it oh, okay. um, which is an interesting kind of side note to it too but also when you're going through this chapter you move from people eating pigs and particularly baby pigs which were a delicacy um then to as Tyrion's making his way through the camp he sees people um different groups and conscript conscripts eating different kinds of food um, and that was because soldiers were responsible for bringing their own food source with them. Mm. Um, unlike contemporary military where you have a mess hall and that's provided to you by the government or whoever you happen to be fighting for, um, you were on your own. 
And so you see people eating different things. Um, yeah, and, like and the in, hill tribes are eating an yes. ox, right? Yes. Yeah, right. Which is going to take forever to roast. Absolutely, right. And, and but you know, it's, it's part of their culture and tradition, but it's also part of the, you know, the, the you see the diversity within the ranks of, of how people choose to subsist um, within the military, but then that also sets the stage for how they're going to, the different ways in which they're going to fight. Um, one of the funny, funny things uh, that like the great puns that occurred in the midst of all sort of the the, the food jokes is um, early on in the chapter when they're talking about the savages, and you know it's kind of like we 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 accept the fact that we've got to have these you know these people fighting for us and they're vicious on the battlefield, but we don't really respect them just because they're not civilized. And they were talking about that, telling that story of uh, the 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 people who were who were fighting with one another um and they're fighting over a sausage they said right and then he says perhaps they were hoping to get the sausage back and then later on um you know a few minutes later it says shaga stopped them from chopping off the dead man's cock which was fortunate and so here's this great pun like to sort of come full circle between the if, if this is a this is a chapter that's both about war and it's also about sex and, and desire, then we have it sort of all waged within this great pun of like sort of the sausage penis, right? So they're fighting over a sausage, right? With the, like, and then like, sure. which evolves into this like near bloodshed, right? Mm-hmm. And it barely stops them from, from chopping off the penis because they're so angry over this sausage. Um, but I, I think, you know, really early on, like Martin's giving us a little wink um, and, and kind of telling us that that sex and death are intimately linked. And you <laughs> sex, know, death, really, and food. Really <laughs> right, right. I mean, they're, they're both sort of these you know, yeah. insatiable desires that kind of are, that kind of go together. Right. Yeah. The other thing about that table is that it's up on a hill. And mm-hmm. Tywin decides that what he's going to do is he's going to be seen by all, right? It's not it's sort of... He's not just above everyone in rank. He needs to, like, occupy this hill. And really what, what he would like to do is he'd like to be well-positioned for the battle tomorrow, right? So he takes the high ground so he can kind of see what's going on on the battlefield. That's where he sets up to eat. So he's So, again, we see the parallel between the place you choose to eat and the place yeah. you choose to occupy during the battle. You almost get the sense that Tywin views the battlefield as like a chessboard. And he needs to take sort of like a God's eye view of it. You know, we'll meet other sort of battalion leaders in this story who they will lead their men into battle. Right. So it's sort of like I'm going to lead by my bravery. Mm -hmm. Tywin is very much I'm going to win this battle with my mind. Mm hmm. And being up on that hill allows him to see more of the battlefield, and that's going to allow him to, you know, make the decisions that he needs to make. Well, one of the decisions he's going to make is he's going to put Tyrion and his sort of group of hodgepodge, undisciplined clan folk over by the river. And you just said sometimes you put your most fierce person up front, right, in the battle? So yep. if, if you see the mountain, you know, who's, you know, the largest man you've ever seen to the right, and then you see Tyrion to the left, where are you going to attack first? Well, according to Tywin's logic, 
you might go for the weak point and go after Tyrion's group. And, of course, he hopes that Tyrion's group is going to collapse because he tells us later that's what he hopes. He hopes that Tyrion's group is going to collapse. And then what will end up happening is that the Stark men will find themselves with their back to the river. And then the rest of his men can, can then push them backwards into the river. And, of course, with heavy armor, you know, the river, you might actually sink into the river and die. Um so Tywin expects that his dwarf son and his group of what 300 hill folk are going to look weak at the vanguard and he's mm-hmm. going to use that as a feint to draw the Stark men toward the river. That's just part of his strategy and included in the strategy is maybe a desire to have Tyrion killed. What do you think? Yeah, I I think that's absolutely, uh, you know, it's sort of an accepted casualty of war of this particular strategy, especially since he doesn't tell Tyrion of the plan. Right. Um, And the, you know, that's sort of the heartbreaking moment where, um, you know, is in probably the most bold way, um, acts of negligence have existed and, you know, and rudeness, um, but this is sort of the, the, the first way where you're, you're you can very argue, you can very strongly argue that a, a father has uh, made in a, a deliberate attempt to sort of take his son's life, yeah. um, right? As, you know, and in a in a way of not only just that, but like making him um, not equipping him properly to even fight, right? Doesn't take it seriously. It's just like we're just going to stick you out there and use you as a um, as a strategy. Use you as bait. And I yeah. think that what ends up happening here is that we see exactly the kind of sort of legacy over personhood that Ty- that sort of is core to Tywin's strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't want, he, he thinks it looks like weakness to have Tyrion captured and maybe killed at the Eyrie, right? He's willing to go to war for that because that makes the Lannister name look weak, right? Absolutely. But if his son, who's sort of an embarrassment anyway, happens to die bravely in battle, then he kind of kills two birds with one stone. He gets to accumulate the honor, right? My, I'm the father of the son who died bravely. But he also gets to get rid of the son who he... Let's Let's face it, he probably hates him. He probably hates his son. And he, I, I just think that this is a great window into Tywin's hierarchy of concerns. Well, and as you're talking, I couldn't help but think about contemporary militaristic strategy too. And in the sense that we have different categories and levels of soldier. And hmm. when, we, when we talk about who's on the front lines, um, and again, our front lines look really different now with technology than they did perhaps in World War One, mm-hmm. right? But um, but it's still you know, more common for the poorer right, people to be the foot soldiers, right? Absolutely, it's it's the enlistees, it's the um, the draftees, then um, then the others behind them who we perceive to be have more education, more training, right. or more is better equipped. So interesting that so, um, so yeah. little, you know, so much has changed, yeah. right? Yeah, and so little right. has changed. Well, I, I think that when we think now, it's like being in every other, every other context, being first is usually a form of privilege. And, um, but like being in the vanguard of battle is, is usually sort of the, um, is not a compliment. 
It's not a compliment. And yet I was I also noted that um wartime is can be an episode of advancement, right? Mm-hmm. So we talked about Shay's uh, opportunism in a way. Yeah. Um you know, she can climb the social ranks because here's this lord, you know, who's ready for battle and he wants a woman. Um, also with Braun, if, if Braun acquits himself on the battlefield, he'll be even more useful to Tyrion and he can kind of climb the ranks and we know eventually Braun is knighted, right? Yeah. Um, we can, you know, someone like Gregor Clegane can become even more invaluable to Tywin. So in all of those ways, you can kind of, oh, and also you'll have officers die, right? (laughs) Yeah. So if you have you have horsed men who end up dying, you're gonna need more knights. And so if the knights die, then th- there will be room and 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 warrant to elevate a few squires. You know, so you wartime can be a way to for lower s- segments of society to advance. And in that way, it might be a really interesting. Um, a, the outcome of the end of this chapter might be an interesting way of thinking about by accident right so Tyrion is is really similar to Shay in that way is that Mm. she is you know she's able to use her body um, to advance herself or advance her prospects at least in a temporary way and then Tyrion as you pointed out um, quite unexpectedly but uses his body both as sort of a short stature but also um, the by a series of miscalculations or luck or you know strategy mm-hmm. however you want to put it mm-hmm. is able to um, advance himself maybe not in his father's eyes in this moment because I think his father's sort of stunned by what by what happened mm-hmm. but like little by little in small increments is Tyrion's very survival um, a, a form of uh, a, you know both a victory but also a form of advancement he's able to live another day. Right. I mean, that's ultimately yes. like how, how every single that the, the win for Tyrion at the end of this is that he's alive. It's not that he's achieved anything. Right. It's just that he's managed to stay alive. And yeah. so he, he he comes out ahead in that way. He comes out alive. And we know it's interesting. There's a little reversal of roles in this situation because we know what's going to happen next. We know <laughs> that Rob Stark has sent the bulk of his horsed men to River Run. In a hope, in hopes to capture Jamie. Yeah. And so Tywin expects so much of Jamie and so little of Tyrion. And it just turns out that Tyrion actually acquits himself pretty well. And Jamie becomes a source of weakness for Tywin uh, yeah. at the end of the next chapter. Okay. Notable introductions in this chapter. I think that this is the first time we meet uh, Lord Lefford. First time Podrick is introduced. Of course, Shay, we've mentioned. Notable departures. Unfortunately, probably half of the mountain clans that Tyrion has befriended. Uh, specific among them, Khan, son of Korat. And this is maybe one of the biggest show departures that we've seen. This battle is simply not depicted in the first season of Game of Thrones. And I think it's probably a budgeting issue. But what ends up happening to Tyrion is he gets conked out. He, you know, he's, he basically says charge and he's uh, knocked unconscious. And so the show does not 
give us any insight into what happens in this battle. I, I shouldn't say that. The show doesn't depict visually anything that happens in this battle. Yeah. Um, unfortunate, because, of course, Tyrion gets to be heroic in this chapter in a couple places. Yes. Jana, thank you so much for coming back and uh, for bringing so much insight. We always love to have you. Thank you so much again for having me. For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'd like to read an email I got from John. So thank you, John. John writes, I've been getting deep into the Bookaloo episodes and combined with the upcoming House of the Dragon, I'm going to give the show another rewatch. One mystery I've always wondered is when Shay turned on Tyrion. Upon this run-through, I noticed a little something about their first scene together and rewound to the previous scene to see if I saw it right. So, John includes a little clip for me here. I'll just describe it for you. The episode where Shay is introduced, look at Tywin's eyes as Tyrion leaves, and look at the eye contact between Bronn and Shay. So, John's suggesting that maybe Tywin is paying Shay from the very start, possibly to spy on Tyrion. So, I emailed John back and I said, Do you think that Tywin has his claws into Shay from the very beginning? Then John writes, I do. And it could definitely explain how he always stays so far ahead of Tyrion at every turn. Also, he makes it a specific point for Tyrion not to bring, quote-unquote, his horror to court. And I believe a few other comments from Tywin about Tyrion may have been from a very informed perspective, and it's always just assumed that it's about Tysha. I like this a lot, John. It absolutely makes me think of the relationship between Tyrion and Shay differently. I'll add one more little bit to this. If it's true, we could ask, why does Tywin say... Don't bring your whore to the capital. Could it be because it's reverse psychology? Could it be that Tywin knows that if he tells Tyrion not to do it, that's exactly what he will want to do? I'd like to hear from others on this. Do you think that Shay is on Tywin's payroll from the very beginning? Book at baldmove.com. And that is all for this week. <laughs> <laughs>